If you would please turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Last Lord's Day, we, we did look at the verses we're going to start with, which is chapter 10, because we were trying to... Uh, there's so many he, his's, and him's, right? We worked through, it's like, what's Jesus? What's mankind? What's God? Um, so we will begin with verse 10, which is where we stopped last time. So I will read the first bit for us, and then we will discuss some. Um, for it was fitting that he... In this case, we might remember that the he in this case is... Nope. This in this case is God the Father, which contextually will make sense. All right, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder. Jesus is the founder, and so therefore, the he, previous he, is God the Father. So, it was fitting... For God, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And uh, we're going to talk about what it means for that to be fitting. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and then there is a quote. Let's first talk about the nature of fittingness. Uh, if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, chapter four. We're going to read some in verse 14. And so this is not the only place that it talks about making a fitting high priest. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, um, essentially, there's some Old Testament assumptions. There's some Old Testament theology that the author of Hebrews has in the back of his mind. And is based on that, he is making an argument about Jesus. All right, Things had to happen the way they did because it is fitting. Why do we know it's fitting? Because it corresponds to Old Testament theology about, about how priesthoods work. So, chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, is, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And now he will explain why he just said what he just said. For... Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of, his, of, his, of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
being designated by God a priest, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. There's two Old Testament theological notes there. All right, one of them is very obvious in the Old Testament. The other one maybe not so, but he's he's using it, and we see in, after you look at it, you go, oh yeah, that totally does make sense, even though it might or might not be explicitly called out. One of these pieces of theology, which is very explicit here and very explicit in the Old Testament, is priests do not choose their role. Right? Priests do not get to choose their role. They are appointed priests. All right? the, the, if you're in the Levitical tribe, all right, if tribe of Levites, you don't get to choose your role. You're born into it, all right, and you have it. You don't get a choice. You don't get to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a king instead. Nope. Right? You have a role, you were born into it, you were chosen that because your whole tribe was chosen that. And not only that, specific people within that tribe were chosen to be high priest. So in all of these ways, all right, people are specifically chosen. So if someone says, as someone did, hey, we want to take over the high priesthood, Right, this happened in, in the Pentateuch, we want to take, we want, why does Aaron get to do all this kind of stuff? What happened to them? Do you remember? The earth swallowed them up. God killed them. All right. So God, God appoints priests. Priests do not appoint themselves. This is true of Jesus. All right. That's the argument there. God specifically appointed Jesus to be priest. Yes, Bill. That was the issue with Saul too. He was trying to do stuff that was for the priests, but he was not in the priest's right. He's not supposed right. to do it. All right. And God was very now, David did some things that were kind of priestly, but we also see in the Psalms, right, and that's actually kind of what we're, he quotes here, that the king was actually of the order of Melchizedek. So he actually was a priest, kind of. But yeah, Saul was different and was judged for that. Now, that's one thing that's very explicit in the Old Testament. You can go look it up. It's clearly a concept. There's another concept here that is basically assumed, I think, because everyone in the Old Testament who is a priest is human. Um, But it's a theological point that the author of Hebrews points out. And that is this. For a priest to be an appropriate priest, they must go through the same things and feel the same things and have experienced the same things as those they worship with, for those they lead. So in other words... From an Old Testament theology perspective, a priest has to be a human. From a New Testament theology perspective, therefore, if Jesus is going to be our high priest, he must become human. Thus, the incarnation was absolutely necessary. And if we look at this bit right here, go back to uh, chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, right, in the days of his incarnation, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him in other words the incarnation for the author here was absolutely necessary and that Jesus had to go through the learning process, all right, the experience of suffering, just like every other person, because that's the only way he could have been made a valid high priest. It was absolutely necessary that he be made like us in every way. This is why 
um, when it comes to the next few centuries, there was a big idea among the Christian fathers. And this notion was this. Anything that Jesus did not take on, he did not redeem. All right? That's a notion that they have. Meaning that if he wasn't really human, whatever really human part he did not take on, he did not redeem. And it's, I think, at least partially based on this notion. For him to be a proper redeemer, all right, for the author of Hebrews, he must truly, really be human. He must truly, really experience what we experience. All right, which means growing up and learning and suffering and struggling. The difference being for the author of Hebrews, right, the difference between him and the high priest in the Old Testament is the high priest had to offer sacrifices for himself. Jesus, being sinless, did not. So those are two notions, two Old Testament pieces of theology that are clear here. Now we'll go back. All right? One, priests, are not, priests, priests do not choose their role. They are chosen. That's and that they must, in fact, be human. Yeah? So, knowing that Jesus is God, and God is all-powerful, so Jesus is all-powerful, how could he not just for lack of a better word, transfer those human experiences onto himself because he can know everything and then have those experiences without living out as a human. What's the difference between the two? I don't know, but the fact is he had to become human. Mm -hmm. And so he was actually human and experienced it. Experience doesn't really strike me as something you can power over to yourself. Okay. All right, back to to Hebrews chapter 2. This idea that the author of Hebrews had in the back of his brain... All right. This I think you see here. All right. For it was fitting. All right. For what was fitting? It was God. God the Father thought it was fitting. All right. When He's going to. All right. When He's going to send the founder of their salvation to them, God the Father thought it was fitting that the Son should be made perfect through suffering. All right. Because everybody suffers. Humans all suffer. Humans all die. It was necessary for the Son to go through all of that. It was necessary for the Son to die. Right? Because the Son died, the Son can redeem us from death. If the Son had never died, if you go with the Father's theology, the Son could not redeem us from death. Right? It was fitting for God to do this. And so that's, that's the author of Hebrews theology. And you see it there and you see it in other places as well, I think. For it was fitting that the Father should make the Son, alright, founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering, alright, and therefore bring sons to glory. Any questions about that? Any thoughts? Anybody want to build on that? Alright, I'm going to ask you a question about your translations in the next verse. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Trials that just happen. Now, maybe indirectly, yes, the world is messed up, but um, the righteous can suffer and, and be tempted without sin. Agreed. Amen. Verse 11. For 
Alright, and so this is ex- explanatory in some sense. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, what do you have in your translations right after that? I have all have one source in the ESV. Do you have anything other than all have one source? Or all of one. Or all of one, alright. The point here, right, is for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. It's the same theological point. Alright? For the Levitical priesthood to work. The priest had to be the same, had to be a human, had to be of the center of the same stock and nature of those with him. This is just a continuation of that point. Jesus had to be like his people. They had to be one. All right? How were they made one? Well, they were made one in the sense that he became truly human. And so therefore, he can be, in fact, a high priest. So that essentially is the meaning there. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, which kind of makes sense, right? Because he's one with us, therefore he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Now, um, what, where does your Bibles, if your Bibles have a note, say that this quotation comes from? Psalm 22. Alright, so please turn to Psalm 22. 22, 22. I want you to take three minutes, and I want you to uh, read the context and just get yourself situated so you know what's going on, all right? Read the psalm.
Okay, who's the psalm by? It's by David. Who's the psalm about? David. And Jesus, also. Um, How do we know this is about Jesus? What's that? Right. Jesus himself quoted this psalm, right? He's on the cross. He quotes in um, both uh, Matthew and Mark. Right? He quotes this psalm. All right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Clearly talking about himself. Now, is this a... Uh, what's the feeling that this psalm is supposed to invoke? Despair turning to hope. Despair turning to hope. It starts off in a very bad place. All right? Being forsaken by God is a very bad thing. Then in verse 3, there's a... But... You're holy, and you're enthroned. Verse 6, but I'm a worm and not a man. Verse 9, yet? Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan. I am poured out like water, in verse 14. For the dogs encompass me, in verse 16. Request, 19. But, O Lord, do not be far off. Alright? Verse 22. And here is the one we quote. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All of you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or poured the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. So in other words, uh, verse 1 wasn't really fully true. Why, God, God, why have you forsaken me? He is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. All right, David, in whatever he was going through, felt like he was despised by God. But in reality, he, here it goes, not. All right? So when Jesus quotes this on the cross, he's not saying, God has rejected me. That's not what he's saying. All right? What he's saying is this psalm I feel rejected. But in the end, what's going to happen? And in the end, ultimately, like verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. David in this psalm is not expecting his death. David is expecting his exaltation, as is Jesus whenever he quotes the psalm. Now, why would the author of Hebrews quote that verse? What's the argument? How does it fit into his point? There's got to be a reason. Jesus, um, the author of Hebrews doesn't quote the despair part. What does the author of Hebrews quote here? I will tell of your names, my brothers, in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Okay, so what's the idea? Praising God. That he is praising God. But that doesn't contribute to the the argument of the author. Yeah. He's saying. 
11, verse 2, sanctified. So he's talking about Jesus in verse 11. Uh-huh. He says, Jesus says this, and he goes to Psalm 22. Mm-hmm. So he's saying that this whole psalm is about Jesus. He's saying this whole th- psalm is about Jesus. But more specifically, all right, he's definitely, he's, he, he has learned from Jesus. This psalm is about Jesus. All right? Yeah, what? He's saying he's been exalted. He's saying he's been exalted? Well, he's saying that, um, that the brothers have been sanctified through Jesus' death, right? So he's not ashamed to call them brothers because they all have one source with the Father. They're now all priests because through his death, everyone has been sanctified. They're the children of God. Right. And he, he is a part of the congregation, right? I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. So he's there with them, right? It is the exaltation piece. Certainly it is that. Alright? There's no sorrow here. Alright? This is this is post-sorrow, this is exaltation. He's quoting this because the one who is exalted also claims himself. I'm a part of the congregation. These are my brothers. Who's the congregation? Jacob is the congregation. Israel is the congregation. So the author of Hebrews is looking at this psalm that he knows is about Jesus and sees there's Jesus who says he's a part of the congregation. Therefore, back to the point we made earlier, he can be high priest. Because you can only be high priest if you're human. And so therefore, Jesus was human. Now this next one is a little bit more, a little bit different. In verse 13, and again, because clearly he's moving on. I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Your Bibles, what do they say that's a quote from? At least the first one. What do they say? Second Samuel 22, Psalm 18, 2. Anybody else? Isaiah 17 and 18. Isaiah 17 and 18. What else? Anybody else? What do they say about the second quote? Behold, I and the children God has given me. Okay. Any anybody else have that or something else for the second quote? Sometimes translations will give multiple verses, all right, uh, and they're good cross references. The Isaiah eight seventeen and eight eighteen I think is the most appropriate one. The reason why is the first quote does have echoes in various different verses. None of them have the second quote. So therefore, let's go look at Isaiah 8. So turn to Isaiah 8. We will look at 8.17 and 8.18. Eight seventeen, he says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. That's the first part. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me, there's the second part, are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. I'll give you a couple minutes. Look at the context. Think about it. What, what is going on, generally speaking, around here?
All right. Contextually, what is going on? Does anybody know? What's what's our situation historically speaking? Right, the Assyrian invasion. So this is right around 722. All right. Now Isaiah was in the southern kingdom or northern kingdom? Southern kingdom, right? All right. Two guesses, you know. Fifty-fifty. All right. So he's in the southern kingdom. All right. And his general warning, if you read a little bit before, is uh, basically Syria is going to come like a flood, and it's going to come right up to your neck. All right. But trust in God because He's going to save you. All right. God did not save the northern kingdom. He sent Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom. Did not save them. However, it was God's intention to bring them. Oh, I'm going to die. No way. God's going to preserve Judah. All right? So he, Isaiah, is, is talking essentially about Judah is going to be saved um, through all of this. All right? And Isaiah was someone who hung around the temple. All right? he, was, he was in Jerusalem. He was talking to the king of Judah. Um, this, is, this is essentially what's going on here. All right? Like verse 8, And it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of the land of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. All right. So that's the context. Jesus is all in these chapters. All right. All over the place. If you look in Isaiah uh, chapter seven. All right, you've got um, where Isaiah goes to Ahaz, and the Lord spoke to Ahaz, this is verse 10 in chapter 7, Ask for a sign of Yahweh your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put Yahweh to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call him his name, Emmanuel. All right, Jesus is all over this section. In the, in the next part of, of this chapter, right, you get into the, for us a child is, is born, you've got lots of great, you know, Renaissance music coming out of that, all right? There's lots of Jesus in all of this, all right? So contextually, when we look at 17 and 18, all right, I think the author is basically just reading all of this, all right? All these prophecies that Isaiah is given, all of these prophecies are about Jesus. And then when he reads, when he when he reads or quotes seventeen, I will wait for the Lord. This is Jesus talking. All right, he's got to read it that way. Otherwise, the argument does in his in Hebrews doesn't make any sense. He's reading this as Jesus talking. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, and this is the. This is the key, the same idea of we had before, of he's one of the people. All right? Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel. All right? So if you would turn back to the, to the book of Hebrews. So what you've got there, all right, is him, once again, all right, he, he's reading the Old Testament with Jesus in mind. And I think he's reading that whole section about Jesus and saying, this is about Jesus. And so he says, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. How could he call them brothers? Well, he's in the congregation in Psalm, and he's in the congregation in Isaiah. 
Therefore, he's not ashamed to call them brothers, because he's like them. He became truly a human. And then he continues, verse 12, or four, excuse me, 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. A few things to talk about there. Um, so I just read that the verse 14 from the ESV. Let's hear some other translations. Anybody else? Which verses? Just 14. Uh, I'm sorry, 714? Uh, Hebrews 2.14. Oh. Yeah. NIV, I assume? NIV. Okay. Since the children have flesh and blood, blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. 15. And free those who are all who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Okay, another translation of verse 15. Anybody? Tim? It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Okay, anybody else? Okay. So the goal here, right? What's Jesus' goal? Alright, he becomes like a man. Alright? Not like a man. That's, that's bad theology. He becomes a man, all right? He becomes a man so that he can truly die, all right? Because his death was necessary. Because death itself needed to be destroyed, all right? And he cannot heal what he does not take on, according to the Father. So therefore, he takes on real human life so that he can take on real human death. And then through that, all right, therefore essentially nullify the power of Satan, Right? Because what's the worst thing that Satan can do to you? The worst thing he can do is kill you. Right? Satan is not the, the, the one who tortures people in hell and therefore can torture them or anything like that. All right? God is the one who judges, not Satan. All right? Satan's worst power is to kill you. All right? Nullified by Jesus. All right? What did Satan do? Satan killed Jesus. All right? But I thought God killed Jesus. God killed Jesus. And he used Satan to do it, right? Just like he used the Romans to do it, and he used the Jews to do it. He used all of them to kill Jesus, all right? So that, ultimately, that power might be destroyed, and that one fiendish being might be destroyed. And therefore, in verse 15, to deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, I think it's an interesting principle, um, I think this is generally true. Anything you fear is your master. You ever thought about that? Right? Because if you, if you fear something, then it will genu- genuinely control you. Right? All right? I fear not having enough money, and so therefore it controls how you behave. I fear this person at work, and so therefore it controls how you behave. I fear death, so it controls how you behave. Um, you're afraid of. You shouldn't be afraid of Satan if the resurrection doesn't exist, right? You absolutely should, because he has the power of death. Um, but by defeating him and by destroying the power of death, there's no need for fear, 
And if there's no fear of death, there is no slavery to death, right? And of course, anytime you're, you're, you, you have a Jew writing about slavery, what should you think of? Egypt, Egypt right? The people were delivered out of Egypt, right? Out of slavery to people. Did they fear the Egyptians? Absolutely they feared the Egyptians, right? Um, they, they thought they were going to get killed when the army came after them. God protected them, right? That is an image of salvation in Christ, right? Here, once again, I don't think that idea is, is all that far off. And so in verse six, 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, all right? It's, it's funny. It's just like he's just sure at this point, right? He hasn't quite made this argument yet, but he just basically assumes everyone is going to agree with him. Surely. It is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, going back to the same exact point he's been making, and then he will make again in a few chapters. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so that's the end of chapter 2. And then he's now going to launch into essentially a comparison between Jesus and Moses. And so there's some major theological points here, all right? Some very high Christology, all right? But not only a very high Christology, a very high evaluation of the humanity of Jesus, all right? Sometimes in people's desire to exalt Jesus' divinity, they leave out his humanity. For the author of Hebrews, you can't do that. Because if you, any, in any way, say that he was not really a human, all right, then you've lost the whole fact that he could be a priest, all right? And then that's picked up later by theologians, right? And this is why when you get the orthodox formulations in the creed, they're very clear. Jesus is God. Jesus is human. He's not God and a little human. He is fully God, fully man. It's very much an argument here. Of course, he's focusing more here on the human part. He'd been speaking a little bit more on the exaltation part before this, but now he's shifted into that human part. All right? And just to reiterate, the basic ideas in the Old Testament that the author of the Hebrews is using are, one, priests don't get to pick themselves. Jesus was appointed this. This was the Father's plan. The Father appointed the Son to these things. And therefore, he, is, he can be a valid high priest. And two, Priests can only serve those they are like. So those are the main ideas, main ideas there, right? And of course, here ending with death before going into Moses. Um, that's chapter two. Any thoughts? Anything anybody wants to build on? Want clarification on? Comment on. I think it's he is not ashamed from a from a um, being standpoint. All right, it would be a shame for the Most High God, who is clearly not a man, saying, "You are my brothers," because in fact, humanity is not the brother of the Father. 
they are the brothers of the Son, right? And so I think that's really the point there. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Why? Because they are brothers. They are, in fact, his people. Now, in terms of the, the ickiness factor, um, I mean, I definitely think that's part of it as well. Are there people that Jesus is ashamed to call brothers and will not call brothers? Yes, clearly, right? Um, Jesus came, died for his people, right? And those are, in fact, his brothers. But I think that's the primary point there is... This is an argument for humanity. That's the focus, the humanity of Jesus, specifically, in this chapter. So, I think it's an don't be ashamed ontologically, because he's human. Does that make sense? That hit all of that, or is there something else there? there's anything about this anybody wants to discuss please let me know I'll be here during lunch we can talk later Grady I think this is verse 9 in limited atonement uh, idea mm-hmm. this does for every man everyone Sure. So, the whole context of this is him being a part of his people, right? That's that's one of those assumptions that essentially comes with the priesthood, all right? The high priest of the Levitical priesthood was not the priest of the Babylonians, right? They were in that they were in a, a, a clan, right? They were in a group. And it's specifically those people. So I think that whole notion underlies all of this, right? Uh, when they gave sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, this is, was not to atone for the sins of the Chinese that they didn't know, right? This was specifically to atone for the sins of the people, all right? So when you go in verse 9 and you see something like, but we see him, him for, for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned for glory and honor because of the suffering death, so that he, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. All right? He did. Totally tasted death for everyone. All of his people. I think is generally how you have to limit it. Because in all of biblical theology, all right, and the Old Testament is extremely explicit. It's the assumption underlying everything. The priesthood is for the people. Right? And therefore, all the sacrifices are for the people. All the law is for the people. The law in the Old Testament is not for the Chinese. All right? It was specifically given to the people for them. So I think that's the basic bounding factor. All right? It's just... Um, he, he, would, he would taste death for every single one of the people. That's how I take that. Okay. Let's be dismissed. Nina, I'm so glad you're here. Will you please pray for us?